Well, you are invited to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be. And we're nearing the end of Paul's discourse here on the question of meats sacrificed to idols. And nestled in this discourse, as he draws his concluding remarks, are uh, two verses specifically that really strike at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, practically speaking. It, it was a passage that my heart desperately needed this week, and that I trust we all need this passage. And it is a passage that's convicting when we consider it rightly in light of ourselves. But we need that. We need that. So as we near the end of chapter 10, we come now to verse 23. Verses 23 and 24 is where we'll preach from today. And I want to preach a message to you entitled, The Church's Golden Rule. The Church's Golden Rule. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, these are the words of God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. In 1976, evolutionist Richard Dawkins wrote a book entitled The Selfish Gene. In his book, he argued that we can't expect human beings to be anything else but selfish. He says, quote, We are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. While Dawkins makes an astute observation of man's character... He is fundamentally incorrect about how and why man is the way he is. Dawkins believed that man was selfish as a result of the evolutionary process known as natural selection. And he commends our selfishness as a good and necessary thing that perpetuates our survival. Well, he could not be more wrong about his conclusion. Selfishness is not a virtue that leads to life. It's an abomination that leads to death. Mankind did not become selfish through natural selection, but through an act of sin committed in the Garden of Eden. And in the fall, man's affections were radically corrupted. And the natural love and devotion that he had first to God and then to his neighbor was replaced by an unrivaled Self-centered, self-seeking, self-promoting mentality. And man has been that way ever since. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul says that the last days that we have been living in for the last 2,000 years would be characterized by perilous times. And the very first description that Paul gives of these perilous times is not a wicked government. It's not a pandemic. The very first description that Paul gives to, to, to know that we're in perilous times, he says, men will be lovers of their own selves. We could not begin to count the number of wars and fights and conflicts and tensions that boil down to sheer selfishness. James 4, verses 1 through 3. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. Ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that she may consume it upon your lusts. What is James saying? Why are there so many fights among us? Because we have lusts. We want to satisfy our own fleshly, selfish desires. And so we kill 
and, and we don't get what we want. And so we pray and we don't get what we want because we're praying for something just for our own selfish reasons, not for the glory of God, not for the good of others, but for us, for me. And we know that the unregenerate heart is bound up and arrested by its own selfishness. But what we must remember is that James was not writing to unbelievers. Paul did not address his epistle to the world. They're writing to the church. Those who profess to be Christians. Think about what Paul is doing here in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 10. This is the tail end of a three-chapter section on meats sacrificed to idols. And Paul lays out the principles of Christian liberty and he explains that eating meat sacrificed to idols falls under the discussion of Christian liberty. But what the Corinthians were trying to do, we saw this last week, is they were taking his admission that it is possible to eat the meat sacrificed to idols and not sin. They were taking that admission and they were trying to make temple attendance a matter of Christian liberty. But participating in the feasts of temple worship, on the other hand, is not Christian liberty because it's an act of idolatry. Christian liberty never gives you the liberty to do something which God in his word says is sinful. Attending pagan feasts at the temple is an ethical non-negotiable. You cannot do it. And then in verse 25, Paul shifts gears. And it's important for us to see the shift, lest we think that Paul is softening his condemnation of idolatry. When we get to verse 25, we'll see that Paul is tying up some loose ends and he's addressing some subsidiary issues that he hasn't yet talked about. Those issues are the issues of meats that are bought in the meat markets and the issue of dining with unbelievers. So he's talked about the meat He's talked about going to the temple, but what about what about the meat that's sold in the meat market? We don't even know if it was sacrificed to idols or not. And what about an unbeliever who invites me over to his home for a meal? What, what am I supposed to do there, Paul? Well, he's going to get to that in verse 25. But as we're looking at this, as we're looking at chapter 10, we need to be asking ourselves... Is there a driving concept that ties all of these relating issues together? Or is he just haphazardly, randomly going through and addressing these things? Is there an overarching concept that applies to all aspects of the discussion? In other words, if the church would just follow this one thing, this whole issue would be settled. Is there such a thing? I believe that there is. There is such a main principle And it's found in verses 23 and 24. In fact, this principle is so overarching that it cannot be limited only to eating meat sacrificed to idols. Oh, how our churches would be revolutionized if they began following this one simple principle. This is life-changing stuff. Church-changing stuff. Marriage-changing stuff. Family-changing stuff in verses 23 and 24. This principle is the church's golden rule. And if we abided by this rule, we would rid the church of infighting, strife, and schism. Well, what is it? What is it? Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. That's it. That, that's the, the principle here in verses 23 and 24. Now think for a minute about what the Corinthians were doing. I want to, to painstakingly be careful to tie this in to the context of chapter 10. What were they doing? They were insisting on their rights, or what they thought were their rights, by any means necessary. Why did they insist upon their rights? Because they were selfish and cared more about fulfilling their pleasures than they did about the glory of God. 
Why did they brazenly place stumbling blocks before the weaker brethren in the church? Because they were selfish and cared more about their carnal desires than they did about the spiritual care of their brothers and sisters. Why did they commit idolatry at the pagan temple? Listen, because selfishness is idolatry. That's what it is. It's a a form of idolatry that places you before God. When you really strip it down. And 2,000 years later, not much has changed with the people of God. It would be easy for me to stand here before you today and say that all of my sins are a result of external agitators. And that's what Adam did in the garden. Well, the woman that you gave me, she caused me to do it. Well, if it would have been for that guy that cut me off in traffic, I wouldn't have sinned. With that bad word I said and that evil thought I thought. Well, if my wife would have just done what I asked her to do the way I asked her to do it, I wouldn't have lashed out and sinned against her. It's her fault. Well, if it wouldn't have been for that church member who didn't respond how I wanted them to to something I said, I wouldn't have sinned. But the truth is, all of these external stimuli are only occasions for the selfishness in our own heart to rise up and conceive sin. What's the, what do they say? You'll never know how sinful you are until you get married. Right? They say that. And then they say, you'll, you, you really don't know how sinful you are until you get married and have children. Whether that's true or not, the point of it is this. You were selfish all along. It wasn't that marriage made you selfish. It was that marriage was the occasion for your selfishness to manifest. Because now, at least if you're doing it the way God has prescribed, now you're living with someone else. You're not living alone anymore. And and you have to make accommodations for this human being that you now share everything with. My selfishness causes me to think that I deserve things to go how I want them to go and I have the right to do what I want to do. And when something gets in the way of that, my selfishness doesn't like it. And it produces bitterness and anger and division and a total lack of compassion for others. We might read 1 Corinthians and think, how in the world can these professing Christians go down to the temple and take part in a pagan feast in honor of pagan gods? How can they do that? It's crazy. But you could just as easily ask, how could you? How could you? A blood-bought Born again, redeemed child of God, church member, Bible reader. How could you do the things that you do? How can you talk to your wife with such coldness and cruelty? How can you treat your children so unharshly? How can you come to church and sing the praises of God and hear his word preached and then go home and feast your soul on carnal and sensual entertainment. How can you do that? How can you be so rude and disrespectful? How can you so easily neglect your relationship with God? Well, when we ask it about ourselves, it doesn't seem so crazy because we have such a good defense, do we not? Well, she just didn't do what I asked her to do. The way I asked her to do it. I was justified in what I said to her. Well, my kids, they just get on my last nerve. And sometimes I just can't deal with them. Well, that brother at church that I was rude to, thats all, I was only rude to him because he was rude to me first. That sister, you know, she said something that offended me. And so I gave her a dirty look. It was her fault. Or this one. Well, yeah, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks, but I've just been so busy. I haven't prayed in a month, but... I've just got a lot on my plate right now. No, you're selfish. You're selfish. You care more about your wife 
doing what you want her to do to satisfy you than you care about her for who she is as an image bearer of God. You like spending time with your children as long as you're enjoying yourself. But the minute it becomes hard work, you're no longer interested. Oh, you love the church. As long as everybody's slapping your back, shaking your hand, telling you that you're God's gift to mankind. But the minute someone comes to you with a disagreement, well, suddenly this church has just done you wrong. The reason why you haven't communed with God is not because you're too busy, but because you're too selfish. And because you find pleasure in other things besides Him. Am I describing you? Because I know that as I meditated upon these verses and I thought of their practical applications, I found myself on more than one occasion describing me. The text is not just for Christians who found themselves going to a pagan temple. This is for all of us. All of us need to abide by this golden rule. And we need to wage war against the selfishness of our own hearts. Can I tell you I was not too excited writing this sermon? I was not too thrilled when I, when I prayed over these verses. And I stand before you today as someone who has miserably failed to do this. And I, I, could, I could quit preaching and spend the next 35 minutes just recounting all of my failures and all of the problems in my life and all of the tensions and all of the strife that have come from my own selfishness. But God doesn't want us to do that. God does not want us to sit around and, and wallow in our regrets. He wants us to come to his word, receive correction, apply the correction, and change. So let's look at these verses. There's three things I want you to see. The first is I want you to see the reminder. The reminder. Notice in verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Now if you feel like you're having deja vu when you read verse 23, it's because you are. Okay? Verse 23 is almost verbatim a quote of chapter 6 and verse 12. He tweaks the very end and he quotes from chapter 8 and verse 1. And as I've said before, good preaching is not finding a new way to say a new thing. It's reminding the people of God of truths they so easily forget. And so Paul gives a reminder. And he gives the reminder because he wants us to understand that this, this principle doesn't just apply to the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. This is a universal maxim that applies in all areas of our Christianity. Four chapters later... Paul reminds the Corinthians, four chapters later being chapter 6, four chapters later in chapter 10, he's reminding them of this same precept, applying it to a different subject. All things are lawful for me. Now, remember that this phrase, all things are lawful for me, was not something that Paul himself was saying. He is quoting a Corinthian slogan. And, and we've explained this at length. But he's quoting a Corinthian slogan that they adopted from Greek philosophy. Uh, it was a, a slogan that was steeped in dualism, which we know is a pagan philosophy that essentially teaches that all things material are inherently evil. They're going to be burned up. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with them. Material things don't matter. The only thing that matters is the soul, the inner person. And how did they use that dualism in chapter 6? They used it to justify sexual immorality. Well, God's going to destroy my body. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can engage in as much fornication as I want to. That was their mindset. And Paul had to correct them. And Paul had to teach them that when Christ saves us, he saves all of us, including our physical bodies. And there's coming a day when our bodies will receive the redemption that our souls have already received, and we will spend eternity, not in a different body, but in this body 
glorified. In this body, made new. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if you're in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. And then listen to this. All things are become new. God makes all things new. He doesn't make all new things. The, the mars and effects of sin that, that we are in now will be gone. They will, the curse will be removed. But this body that we live in has been redeemed. And so the Corinthians were entirely wrong when they said, well, meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Does it matter how much I trash and tarnish my body so long as my soul is right? Well, Paul is simply saying that you cannot separate body and soul in that way. And when God saves you, he saves the totality of your person. Now here in chapter 10, the Corinthians were using the same slogan to abuse their Christian liberties. All things are lawful. What were they saying? Very simple. It's not hard to understand. Because I'm saved by grace, because I believe in Christ, it doesn't matter how I live. I have the right to do whatever I want. Everything is permissible. And if you were to have a conversation with a Corinthian, this is how it would go. You would say, uh, you know that you shouldn't go to the temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols and participate in the pagan feasts. And here's what they would say. Oh, it's okay for me to do that because I have believed in Christian teaching and in the gospel and I go to church and I'm good. Therefore, Tuesday afternoon, I can do whatever I want. Sound familiar? Sound like having a conversation with a church member today? You say, how do you justify this behavior? Well, I justify it because Sunday I go to church, I put my $20 bill in the tithe box, I say amen when the preacher finishes. I'm good. I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful to me. I'm saved by grace. It's called antinomianism. It's, it's, it's not saved by grace. It's an abuse of grace is what it is. The grace of God that saves us is not a license for us to sin. Because the grace of God that saves us transforms us and gives us a new relationship to our sins. And so they were using this slogan. They embodied a self-centered focus on what they thought they had the right to do. That, that's, what, that's what they were most concerned with. What can I get away with and still be a Christian? Selfishly insisting upon your rights. It might be a Corinthian virtue... It's certainly an American virtue. But it's not a Christian virtue. A selfish person reads the Bible and, and instead of asking, how can I live in a way that brings the most glory to God and does the most good for my neighbor, they ask, how can I live in such a way that allows me to do everything I want to do and still be a Christian? I didn't expect to hear many amens this morning. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. All things are lawful for me. Do you see the selfishness? The immaturity in that answer? Paul suggests you think about what he says there in chapters 8 and chapter 9, and he says, do you realize, do you realize, yeah, I get it, I get it. Eating the meat is not inherently sinful. I get it. I said that myself. But do you realize that by eating this meat, there's brothers in your church that it offends them. It causes their conscience to stumble. It tempts them to return to the idolatry that you saved, that they were saved out of. Don't you understand? You're causing the weaker brother to perish for whom Christ has died. And these selfish Corinthians, they say, I don't care. It's my right to eat the meat. If they don't like it, too bad. kind of attitude is just so destructive in the church. And it's so prevalent in the church. Mm -hmm. 
so prevalent in the church. We had a we had a guy visit our church. This was two years ago. And he visited for the very first time. He and his wife. It was back when we were still we still had the metal chairs. So I mean this was a long time ago. I don't think any of you were here. And he visited with and he was wearing a dirty white t shirt, basketball shorts, and flip flops. I, I didn't say anything to him. Well, they came back the next week, and they came back the next week, and as I typically do when someone starts visiting regularly, I uh, I invited him over to the house. Hey, I'd like to get to know you, you know? So he comes over to the house and he tells me this while he's sitting at my kitchen table. He says and the next two times he visited, he wore, you know, slacks and a button-up or whatever. But he said, you know how I came the first time in basketball shorts and flip-flops and a dirty white t-shirt? And I said, yeah, I, I remember. He said, you know why I did that? Why? I don't have a clue. He said, I was just trying to see if you were a legalist. I was just trying to see if your church believed in Christian liberty. Because if I wore that and you said something to me about it, I wasn't going to come back because... You don't believe in Christian liberty. Well, that selfish man that visited with his wife is now divorced. And you know, it doesn't bring me any joy to say that. But that kind of selfish attitude, you wonder why we don't see the power of the Spirit manifesting Himself in our churches? You wonder why our worship is so cold most times? It's because we come to the house of God with self-seeking, self-interested motives. And when you challenge someone to live for God in a way that violates what they perceive to be their rights, selfish people are very quick to remind you of their Christian liberty. Paul writes to them and says, you know, there's, there's some brethren in the church that were saved out of the things that you have the liberty to do. Now a godly, mature Christian responds, I know I have the right to do this. I know it's not a sin for me to do this, but I'll gladly refrain if it's causing my brother to stumble. I'll gladly refrain because I love my brother more than I love the meat. But a selfish person responds, Whoa, 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 Paul. You are infringing upon my rights. You're a legalist, Paul. I don't care who sees me. I don't care what they think about it. I'm going to do it. That's the selfish attitude that these Corinthians were embodying. And it's just as prevalent today. I mean, you can't preach on anything these days pertaining to practical holiness and Christian living without hearing the same objection. Show me in the Bible where it says that. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful here because I do believe we ought to be biblical. But you know what I mean. You all know what I mean. The, the proof textures. The proof textures. The, the, proof, the problem with the proof textures is that they want to serve God with the spirit of the letter. Not by the, the newness of the spirit in the sense of the new covenant, the liberty in Christ to glorify God. They're the people that, you know, if they, if they get a paycheck and their paycheck is $753, they're counting out 71, 72, 73, 74, 75. Let me see if I have 30 cents. There's my 10%. And don't you tell me that I should put in a penny more because I know my rights. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's talking about. And notice how he responds to that. All things are lawful unto me. Paul says this, yes, but all things are not expedient. Expedient. The word expedient, helpful, beneficial, profitable. For what? For serving God. For serving one another. Do you realize that you have the right, as a Christian, you have the right to do a lot of things that wouldn't be the best thing? You have the right to say and do a lot of things that wouldn't be the best thing for your brothers and sisters that you come to church with every Sunday. You have the right to do things that 
wouldn't be the option that would bring the most glory to God? It's as if the Corinthians were touting, we have the right to do this, and Paul's responding and saying, yes, but should you? And I think it's important to note that he's challenging this church on this specific issue. Why? Because this church was the church in the New Testament that thought they were the top dogs, spiritually speaking. They thought they had arrived. I mean, they thought they were mature and wise, and they had it all figured out. And time and time again in 1 Corinthians, Paul points out to them, you don't know anything as you ought to know. You don't know anything the way you think you know it. Because you're over here boasting about your rights and you're not even considering that there's an optimal option available for you that would bring more glory to God and be better for those in your church. And so he's asking them, is it expedient? Does it help you to be a better Christian? Does it help you to be a better church member? Does it help you to bring more glory to God? Or are you just insisting upon your rights? Listen, because you want to satisfy your selfish desires with a guilt-free conscience. That, that's, that's what that whole insisting upon my rights boils down to. I want to prove that I have the right to do it so I can do it guilt-free. How different would your life be if you truly repented of selfishness and began to analyze everything and ask the question, is this expedient? See, an immature Christian who is sipping on the milk asks the question, is it lawful? And that is a good question. You need to ask that question before you do something. Does God allow me to do this before I do it? Does God prohibit in his word what I am about to do? You need to ask that question. And the immature babe in Christ, they ask that question and that's where their thinking stops. But when you start to eat the meat, you don't just ask the question, is it lawful? You start to ask the question, is it expedient? Is it helpful? Is it helpful for me to do this? I've had the privilege of being around many godly men and many godly women who are much more mature in the faith than I am. And the thing that's most striking about them is that they seek to honor God in the small thing. And that's a biblical principle. In Luke 16, he says, He that is faithful in little will be faithful in much, but he that is unjust in much will be unfaithful in little also. Areas that others would find so mundane and so insignificant, they seek to bring it into conformity to Christ and glorify God with even that. Why? Because they're legalists? That's what they're often accused of. No. It's not because they're legalists. It's because even though they know that there are other options that are lawful, they're not concerned with just doing that which is lawful. They want to do that which is most expedient. There's plenty of forms of entertainment. There's plenty of enjoyable activities that we as Christians have the right to do. But may we start asking the question, is it expedient for me to do this? You know, there's things you could say to your brothers and sisters. You might have the right, you might be well within your rights to say it. But is it expedient? Is it really what's going to be the most profitable for you to say and do? Paul is essentially telling us that we need to grow up. That's what he's telling us in, in these verses. When you think of selfishness, what do you think of? Think of a child, Right? That's what you think of. Children are naturally very selfish. Why? Because they're sinners. They're totally depraved. And it's cute when they're little. Right? I mean, if John's doing something that John likes and you pick him up and take him away from it, he cries. He pitches a fit. And we didn't teach him how to do that. But it's cute when a little 10-month-old baby does it. It's really not. <laughs> but the world will say that it is. But when God looks down and he sees his adult, believing, baptized church members, 
behaving like unregenerate 10-month-olds, it's not cute. It's not godly. It's not mature. It's selfish. Selfish. Selfishness causes us to ask the question, is this lawful with the intention of doing what pleases me most and getting away with it? But maturity causes us to ask the question, is it expedient because we find our supreme pleasure in living unto the glory of God? Living unto the glory of God. And in order to do that, we have to ask these questions. Secondly, Paul responds and he says, all things edify not. Edification refers to building up in the faith, right? Encouraging. It's what we do and we have times of fellowship. We, we talk with one another about the things of God. We encourage one another. And we, we leave edified, having spent time with our brothers and sisters. And Paul says that there are things that are lawful for us to do, but they don't build us up in the faith. And again, he's borrowing from something he's previously said in chapter 8 and verse 1. What did he say there? Knowledge by itself puffs up in pride. But love from a selfless heart edifies those around us. So the opposite of selflessness is pride. Selfishness is really synonymous with pride. If I think that I'm the head honcho and I'm number one and I'm God's gift to the church, then I start to think that I have the rights to be selfish. But Paul will tell us in chapter 13, the love chapter, right? That charity, and charity is the King James word for brotherly love that we have as Christians for one another. You know what he says about charity? He says, charity does not seek its own. One of the marks of Christian love is that I no longer wake up every day trying to please myself. But I wake up every day with a desire, a true desire, to be a blessing to others. To be a blessing to others. If I have charity in my heart, I will love others more than I love myself. And that love for them will cause me to desire to serve them and to prefer them and to seek their welfare. And that means if I'm doing something that is not inherently sinful, but it places a stumbling block before my brother, I'm going to knock it off because I love them. And that means that if there's something I'm not doing, but I could be doing, I'll do it if it means serving them and helping them. Furthermore, our love for one another doesn't just stop us from doing those things that offend. It causes us to seek ways to be a blessing. What did you think about on your way to church today? Some of you had a drive like we do. What did you think about? Well, I hope I enjoy myself today. I hope I like the sermon. hope the preacher doesn't go too long so I can get home and do what I really want to do. Or were you thinking, you know, there's a brother in the church that's been going through a hard time. I'm going to see how I can pray for him. There's a sister in the church, and she's been complaining about her leaky faucet. After the service, I'm going to ask if there's a time I can go out and, and fix it for her. You know, I better pray for my pastor that he's able to preach today because we need to hear from God. You say, that's just painfully practical. Exactly. It is. Th this verse is really easy as long as it stays on paper. But it's when we try to apply it to our lives that we realize just how hard it is. But the day we start coming to church with a second attitude instead of the first will be the day that we begin to witness a greater manifestation of the power of God in our lives and in our worship. Why? Because selfishness is a carnality that quenches and grieves the Spirit of God. It is. True selflessness can only be accomplished through the filling of the Spirit. You're either full of the Holy Spirit or you're full of yourself. You're not both. You're not both. 
it might surprise you to know that I have once or twice been criticized for my preaching. I know, shocker, right? And I've been asked on more than one occasion, why do you, why do you preach all the time about all of these personal sins of the heart? Pride, sexual morality, lust, selfishness. Why don't you have more sermons on the Democrats and government and COVID and lockdowns and politics? Well, number one, if I was worried that we had a bunch of Democrats in the church, maybe I'd preach more on it, okay? (laughs) The reason is because the Bible deals with it a lot. Do you know one of the things that have been so striking to me reading through 1 Corinthians? The amounts of time that Paul spends dealing on things that are abundantly practical. Chapter 6, what does everybody think of in chapter 6? Oh, you know, know ye not, the unrighteous does not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you, you were washed, or sanctified. Glorious passage. You know he spends more time in that same chapter talking about why Christians shouldn't sue one another in secular courts. Chapter 7, 40 verses on very practical issues relating to marriage. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that contrary to the contemporary Christian mantra, God cares a lot about the way you live your daily life. And I've come to realize, brothers and sisters, listen to me, that the primary manifestation of the Christian The Christian ethic is not how well you articulate complex points of theology. It's not how you vote in the voting booth. It's not your political views. It's the way you treat other people. It's the way you treat other people. And I don't care how much John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham you can quote back to me. If you're cruel to your wife and you're harsh with your children and you're rude and respect, disrespectful to your church members, I have no confidence that you know the Lord. Mm. On the other hand, if you don't even know those two names I just mentioned, but you have a love in your heart for your brothers and sisters and you have a desire to glorify God with the way that you live your life, and you treasure those times in His Word, those times spent in prayer. You might not be able to explain the intricacies of systematic theology. Stick around here long enough, maybe someday you will. But I see that and I say, that's a heart that has experienced the saving grace of God. Listen to what Paul says all the way back in chapter 4, verses 19 through 20 of this book. Paul says, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What power, Paul? The power of saving grace to transform the way you live your life. The proof that you're a Christian is not in what you say as much as it is in the way you live your life. All of this is nothing new, by the way. This is a reminder. This, verse 23, even to the Corinthians, was nothing new. They just got done reading it. And really, you know, we spend two years preaching through this book. But the Corinthians, they got it from Paul. They probably just sat down and read through the whole thing. And Paul is repeating something he said just a few chapters earlier. That's the reminder. But secondly, I want to show you the rule. I need to hasten. But you understand. He says, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. You want the Christian ethic for how we are to live? Here it is. And it's absolutely contrary to the selfish ethic of the world. What does the world tell you? The world says, look out for you. Do what's best for you. And when you do that, the world applauds you. How many posts have you seen on the internet 
where somebody says, you know, I'm just so tired of being a giver and everybody takes advantage of me and I tell you what, I'm going to start putting me first. And what all the comments on that thing say? You go, girl! <laughs> You're laughing because you've all seen it. Yeah. That's the world's ethic. But the ethic of Christianity is, you know what, you're supposed to be a giver. Newsflash, you are going to be mistreated. You are going to be stepped on. The world tells you, look out for you. Make all your decisions in such a way that you receive the greatest benefit. Do whatever will be best for you. Go to college. Why? To receive knowledge? No, to get a job. Get a good job. Why? To be a contributor to society? No, to make lots of money. Why do I want to make lots of money? So I can contribute to, to charity and be a philanthropist? No, so you can have a lot of toys and live a comfortable, easy life. And when you do that, the world will applaud you. We even have a name for this. We call it the American Dream. Well, the American Dream is opposed the Christian gospel. We look at people who have achieved this dream and we see them as successful. But oftentimes, notice I said oftentimes, God looks on them and sees them as selfish. I say oftentimes, there's no inherent sin in riches. In fact, I pray God would raise up a couple millionaires and send them here. Amen, somebody. But there's a difference in being rich because you sought to honor God and like Job, he was pleased to bless you with material things. There's a difference in that, or Abraham, right? There's a difference in that and being rich because you lived a selfish life that put your material pursuits before your care for others. You know one of the most scary verses in the New Testament? Jesus talking about the Pharisees who did all their works out in the open to receive praise of the world. You know what he says? They have their reward. I tell you, that verse has haunted me. Because that verse is saying, you want to live selfish? You want to be rich? You want to be famous? You'll have it. You'll have it. There's plenty of people with zero work ethic and zero ambition. If you really want, if your goal is to just be rich, you can do it. You'll have your reward. In this life, there's coming a day in which all of your selfish pursuits will burn up and you'll have nothing to show for your selfish life. You say, well, if I really seek to conform every area of my life to that which is expedient and to that which is edifying, if I truly seek the well-being of others before myself, the world will think I'm weird. Join the club. Because the world knows nothing about what it means to live for the glory of God. Before my father was converted, I never disappointed him more. And I can remember it. I can close my eyes and I can stand there at 6693 Brookwood Circle in Jonesboro, Georgia, in our living room, and I can remember telling him that I was going to pursue Christian ministry. I just graduated high school. And I had never disappointed him more. Because I graduated valedictorian. And I had full ride scholarships to several colleges. And I would have been the first in my family to ever go to one. And my dad said to me, son, you're throwing it all away. He said, you're going to be a poor preacher the rest of your life. Well, I guess he was right about one thing. But it wasn't until he was converted several years later and the Lord saved him that he realized that going to some prestigious university and making a lot of money was not the sum total of man's existence. And he had his, he had his reasoning. God bless him. I mean, he was lost. I'm not making an excuse, but we grew up poor. <laughs> and here I had the opportunity, by the world standards, to go out and make money and be successful. He said, you're throwing it all away. You should have really seen him when I told him at 19 I was getting married. He really, he really thought that was wild. 
But it's amazing how saving grace, when the Lord saved him at 60 years old, it's amazing how his perspective changed. See, if God gives you the privilege of glorifying him in poverty, why would you settle for all the riches of the world? If God gives you the privilege of being a poor Christian, why would you settle for being a rich heathen? But the tragedy, brothers and sisters, is when Christians adopt their own American dream mentality. And you talk to so many professing Christians, especially the younger generation, and you ask them why they do the things they do and why they have the goals and aspirations that they have, and the answers that they give are no different than unbelievers. Paul is calling us to a serious self-examination. If you want to be a radical Christian, you don't have to sell all that you have and move to Mongolia and preach the gospel to some indigenous tribe that's never seen a white man. You just have to make an earnest attempt to not be selfish. To start trying to put others before you. See, if the Corinthians were doing that, they would have never even asked the question about meats sacrificed to idols. Wouldn't have even been a question. If they were abiding by this principle, we're not going to seek our own. We're not going to fight to defend our rights. We're going to put each other before ourselves. You feel beat up. I mean, I felt beat up when I got done studying this. And really, Paul doesn't really give us much hope in this passage. And thus far, all I've been preaching to you is law. This is a law, by the way. Verse 24 is a law, and it's a law you will never keep. It's a law you've already broken miserably. And if I closed my Bible and said amen, I would send you home with a burden that you could never bear. So I'm not going to do that. Let me preach some gospel to you. Do you see yourself as selfish? Are you convicted over the selfishness of your own heart? Are you thinking... I will never obey verse 24. Well, let me close by telling you about a man who did. There was one, and only one, who for the entirety of his life put others before himself and did everything he did to the glory of God We've seen the reminder and the rule. I want to show you the role model. And this man is our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Notice in Philippians chapter 2, In verse 3, notice what Paul says. He gives the law. He gives the law. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't be selfish. That's the law. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. You say, how can I, with all of my pride and all of my selfishness, truly place others before me? Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You're never going to keep the law through the discipline of your flesh, but only through the grace found in Jesus Christ. I will never produce a selflessness and a humility that is acceptable in the sight of God. My selfishness has already condemned my soul to an eternity in hell. But I rest in the one who is perfectly selfless and never committed the sin of selfishness and who did it on my behalf. What does that look like? What does is, what is a perfect selflessness look like? Look at verses 6 and 7. Who, that is Christ, being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Though our Lord was co-equal and of the same substance and glory as the Father, he humbled himself and he became a servant. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the incarnation of Christ stands as a rebuke to us for our selfishness and our self-centeredness. Christ's condescension to earth to live among sinners, the Creator to be mocked and scorned by His own creation is the ultimate display of selflessness. And then look at verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he died, not for himself, but for his father and for you. As a humble, selfless servant, he went to the cross of Calvary where he gave his life for selfish people like me. All I ever cared about was myself. All he ever cared about was me. Selflessness. When the only thing I loved was myself, he lavished his love on me. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop to think that it might be inconvenient for him to love us? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop and say, well, if I love those sinners, that's going to cost me a lot. It's going to require that I leave the splendors of heaven and condescend to earth and be mocked and beaten and bloodied and crucified and have the fellowship that I've enjoyed for all eternity with the Father. It's going to be broken if I commit myself to loving them. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't look at all that and say, no thanks. No thanks. But he said, I will go. And I will do it all. Because I'm not selfish like they are. And because of his selfishness or selflessness, God is pleased with him. In verse 9 it says, He has highly exalted him. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God is pleased with me and God is pleased with you if you're united to him. Though selfish, we remain in and of ourselves. We now have his grace operating in our life and by his spirit, brothers and sisters. I don't want you to go away feeling beaten up and burdened like I felt studying this passage. By his grace and by his spirit, we war against our selfishness. We fight it. How? By pursuing a greater love and a supreme pleasure in glorifying God and serving others than we do ourselves. You're never going to fight your selfishness by saying, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I know that the selfless thing to do would be this, so I'm just going to do that because I have to. You're, you're never. By the way, that's not how sanctification works. The only way you're going to fight your selfishness is if you say, Lord... Give me a greater love and a greater desire to glorify you than to just satisfy my carnal desires. Give me a greater passion to be a servant to others than to do whatever I want to do. And oh, if you can really get to that place where something that you used to enjoy in your flesh, where it just seems like a trifle compared to the privilege and the joy that you receive from glorifying God you're on the right track to fighting your selfishness. We don't fight our sins as those who strive to keep the law, but as those who rest in Christ, who is selfless on our behalf. Maybe you need to go home and you need to have an honest conversation with yourself about this. And you need to say, how am I doing in this area? And if the answer is not so good, the solution is not try harder. The solution is, Lord, I need the gospel. I need your grace. 
conform me into the image of that selfless servant who gave everything for me. May I give everything for you and for your people. You know, a man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. Don't be that man. And because of the grace of God, you don't have to be that man. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Oh, how our marriages would change. Oh, how our parenting would change. Oh, how our churchmanship would change. Oh, how our work ethic, Monday through Friday, would change. If we began to live, not for ourselves, but first for the glory of God, and then for our neighbor. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. May God help us to follow these basic things that are so fundamental to what it means to be his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your word which brings sharp conviction and causes us to examine ourselves. But Father, I'm thankful that you don't just leave us in misery and despair. But Lord, you encourage us and you point us to Christ and you show us the gospel that he is the one who has accomplished these things on our behalf. And he is the one who has redeemed us from sin. And he is the one, oh God, who has done all of these things that we could never do. We rest in him. We trust in him. And now we pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would give us the grace to be conformed into his image. Do it for your own honor and glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.